0: So I'm going to mention this. I, I really wasn't thinking about this until we were singing the songs. Um, I mention it from time to time. I'm just so in, really incredibly thankful for you guys, my church family. I, I feel distinctly helped in my walk with the Lord in my heart by just coming and being with you guys, singing with you guys, gathering around our Father together. Um, you're singing through voice and body and whatever, hands in the air, whatever you like. You're singing your worship genuinely helps my heart. So during singing time, I'm usually back there by a table kind of deal. But maybe not sitting next to you, but your singing helps my heart. And it's part of God's design for us to help one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And um, I'm just thankful for that. And it was through my heart in the middle of that. Um, we sang this song, um, My Song Eternal. This will be my song eternal to Jesus is better. Um, as we hit those words, man, I was just, I was just struck by it. I'm looking forward to the someday when that really is my song eternal like I have these blips through the week where my heart really does believe that Jesus is better I can't tell you how many blips I have through the week but it's just blipping he's doing we call it sanctification it's a big word he's making us more like him it progresses through our life but man just frankly it's all it is is just blips compared to the, all the hours the day I have and um I'm just so looking forward to like being changed and where that is my song. I actually see, I actually get it. I actually appreciate the gifts of God and the giver. I'm looking forward to that because, um, man, it's just, don't you, don't you know with me that it stinks not seeing that? And, um, but I had, a, I had a sweet moment. I just thought I'd share it with you yesterday. I was out, I was out in Marion, that metropolis of the north. And I was at my father-in-law's place, and he's got this big strip of grass mowed out towards the back. And I was just kind of walking yesterday morning and praying. And, um, and I don't know, I just felt like the Lord was helping me think through some of these texts that we've seen lately. And um, this, my song, Eternal, the only reason I would want this song, Eternal, this, 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 this transformation to, to be enamored, rightly enamored with Christ, the only reason I'd ever want that is because Christ has put that desire in my heart. And so I found myself, like I usually do, whining, complaining as I'm praying. i like, oh, Lord, this is, I'm not doing too well, and I don't look to you and whatever. And I, and I feel like at some point in time, I realized, oh, well, the reason I'm praying about this is because the Lord is aware of that and has graciously brought it to my attention. And he is the one that wants to build those things in my heart, and that's why he's brought it to my attention. And so um, I just kind of wandered and prayed yesterday for a while. And uh, just, just thinking through and, and reflecting on what's going to be like in heaven, um, when you get Christ, your joy eternal, and then all of his stuff. You know, you get to the end, like the last couple chapters of Revelation, it's full of Christ and full of his stuff. It's not that we're simply going to be looking simply at him, but like, man, the this, this city, this river that comes out of throne and goes somewhere. I'll have time in my hands, right, to be able to explore that river, its origin and all the places it goes with the one who makes it. Because it's beautiful, because he's beautiful. But in his beauty, he's actually given these things. And I just look forward to thy heart being more and more like that. And so therefore, I also rejoice the fact that he is making my heart more and more like my heart will be in perfection. And if you know Jesus, he'll do that. He wants to do that for you. You don't have to talk him into changing you. If you desire to change, that's because he's put that desire in you. He'll do it. So just run to him and take advantage of all that he does in you today. Like rejoice in it. Don't sit there and moan at the end of the day of like, oh, I only got so far. Thank the Lord for the great work the Lord does. He's into it more than you are. So don't sit and beg him as if you got to catch his attention. Beg him as if you had to get him to love you. He loves you dearly. That's why you're praying in the first place. So anyway, that was my walk yesterday. My heart was helped, and you guys just helped me a new layer as we sang together. I'd also like to then start saying like, praise God. He did another wonderful work. Yesterday, I believe, at some unknown hour of the day, uh, Dana and Calvin Brown had their son, Kai Brown, born. It's really cool. We're thankful for that. If you don't know who they are, welcome to Cross City. And uh, they moved away, which means also welcome to Cross City. So we love him there in the Chicago area. Uh, he came in at a whopping nine-something pounds. Like a, came in like a wrecking ball, as some would say. All right. So we're thankful for Kai Brown, and we look forward to seeing that little guy soon sometime. Okay, um, where our text this morning is Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. It is the son who trusted the father's plan. Um, if you're not there, I would encourage you to take a take a look at that. Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. Here's some catch-up. Um, we are in Matthew, and we've just exited... The baptism of Jesus, where Jesus is declared to be by the Father and the Spirit to be the Son of God. Big, big moment in all of the history of the entire world when Jesus is baptized by John. He comes out of the water and the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I well pleased. The Spirit testifies to him by hovering over him. And then upon that, Jesus is then taken by that Spirit, led by that Spirit, like we are now led by the Spirit, into the wilderness... So that Jesus would encounter temptation at the hands of Satan. Full bore attack of Satan. So Jesus goes into the wilderness. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days because God has led him in the wilderness. God has led him into fasting. There's food in the wilderness. He's choosing not to eat for the sake of what God has called him to do. He then runs into Satan. And Satan gives three temptations. And uh, last week, this week, and next week are those three temptations. We referenced last week what these temptations are. The temptations are really uh, unique and might catch escape our attention, escape my attention until some other pastors help me understand this. The key, the significance of these temptations is, that J- is how Jesus responds to them. Jesus is quoting scripture, all of it, out of Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8, which are a sermon that Moses gave to the people of Israel after they wandered and failed for 40 years. Now the true Son of God, Jesus, has come to the desert for 40 days, is facing temptation, and does not fail. And so Jesus, because he's referencing, he's quoting out of this sermon in Deuteronomy 6 and 8, he's demonstrating and tying back in the fact that he is the true Son of God, and that he isn't failing, and that the 40 years in the wilderness were like a precursor, an Easter egg for the 40 days of temptation that would eventually come to the true Son of God. The 40 years of Israel were a foreshadow of the ultimate 40 days of victory Jesus would have in the desert in which he would be victorious. And we learned a couple things in that passage. Number one, Satan is real and he is to be known, watched out for, prayed against, and resisted in our hearts like Jesus did perfectly. We do uh, do this not with a panic because he's terrible. He's terrible. If you get what who Jesus is, then he's the ruler. I'm sorry, if you get Satan is, then he's the ruler of this world. And the power is at his hand that he can control weather. He can control demons. He can control unbelievers. He can bring sickness. He can kill. Um, he should terrify you. Your foe is terrifying. And you are absolutely unequipped. And we are uh, together, we are unequipped to defend against him. So, but because we really listen to what Christ has said, we don't do this with a panic, but with a somber grasp on the reality of his power, a clear understanding of the true danger of his aims over his tools, and a greater confidence and peace in the Father who protects us through the ultra-powerful Spirit of God who's within us, because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. So as brutal as he is, and as real as he is, he isn't anything compared to to the one who's in you as a believer in us as believers as a church so we saw that number one i think a lot of us thought a lot this week about the difference between satan's aims and his tools we as people tend to really dread satan's tools and we usually just dread the negative looking ones But it's not his tools that are dangerous to us. It is his aim. The tools of loss and pain and all these things that we see in Job and all these things we see here, the tools are aimed to do something, to make you not believe Jesus, that he is strong and that he is good. That's the aim. He'll take the win any way he can. He'll even take the win if his aims just simply scare you into silence. He'll take it because his aim is accomplished. Number two, We saw that Christ affirmed and showed us that our true need is not what is in front of us, but rather to attentively listen to every word coming from the mouth of God. That's Jesus' words. Every word coming from the mouth of God. Coming being a present thing, like the words are still coming. Not that God's giving us new revelation. He's speaking out of Scripture. But as we walk with Him, He will keep speaking to us out of Scripture. And He will guide us by His Spirit. But that's what we need. We need our Father who is speaking to us, and that is the desire of our heart. So, in these temptations, there's a question of, like, what's, what's he poking on? I think the temptations are one of the more complex things to understand in all of the New Testament. Like, what's going on there? It's kind of mysterious. Um, uh, John Hansel is going to be leading a Bible study, uh, how to study the Bible course, downstairs before the services. Uh, da- John, you remember the dates on that? October 8th to November 12th on Sunday mornings, if you'd like to take that, it'd be a great help. Um, because when you come to Scripture, there are ways that we go after understanding it. And understanding a list when things happen three times is one of those things you get to kind of work through what's actually happening. I would encourage you to check that out and be a part of that of that study t- if you've not studied the, the science of studying Scripture, which we call hermeneutics. So what is Satan poking at in his temptations? Um, this is ultimately not trying about proving that Jesus is the Son of God. He says two times in here, if you are the Son of God, then do this. But this is not attempting to get Jesus to demonstrate that he is the Son of God. We know that by actually looking at how Jesus responds to these things. The way that Jesus responds tells us that these are responses of continued submission to and patience with God's timing and wisdom. They are all commitments to the goodness and the authority of the Father. It's not trying to prove, not Satan trying to get proved that Jesus is God. It's actually him goading Jesus to deny that God is good and deny that God has authority. It's really, it's really tying into the fact that since Jesus has been declared to be the Son of God, Jesus' position and authority, his right as the Son of God, is to impose his wisdom over the Father's plan in the comforts of bread. In this passage here, in the glories of of a toss-down from the temple, rather than waiting for the deliverance and glory that God gives. So Satan is going after this. Satan is going after the heart of Jesus, trying to get Jesus to doubt the goodness and the authority of his Father. That's Satan's aims in these three temptations. So take a look with me in in verse 5 of chapter 4. We walk through this text. Then the devil took him to the holy city, which is Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, a high point of the temp- temple. So this, to me, seems to be actually a physically transported thing. I think it's different than next week. I'll give you reasons next week. He's physically transported supernaturally by Satan here to the top of the temple, which is a very, very high spot. Um, the historian said it's so high, it'll make you dizzy. Um, and it's th- why do I say it's physical? Because the temptation here is throw yourself off. So if it was a vision... That doesn't do a whole lot for us, right? So he's saying, throw yourself off because it's actually a physical location. And he's picking this spot for a particular reason. Um, there are many a places that Satan could take in Jesus to, right? He could take him to like um, one of these great big trees some more or a giant, like on the edge of the Grand Canyon and said, hurl yourself. But he took him to the temple, the centralized spot in the worship of, of, of Israel at that time a spot where actually also is very visible and covered with people. So if Jesus is up there and he hurls himself off and takes a swan dive off it, and as according to Satan's plan here, the angels would swoop him up, there's a recognition that Jesus is special, that he is fulfilling mess- messianic prophecies. So he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. In verse 6, he says to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, so While Satan has all these amazing, terrible, horrible, physical things at play, Satan also has another thing. Satan knows more scripture than you know. He's he's, he's not eternal. He was created. But he's been around for a long, long time. And so he understands the scripture. And since Jesus responded to him with scripture in the last temptation, he ties in and goes, well, you know, speaking of scripture, let me quote for you Psalm 91. He says, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So um, there's there's a couple little contexts here, what he's saying. He's tying into a quote out of Psalm 91. I just thought I'd mention this really briefly. It might, it might be of help to you as you f- seek to know how to read the Old Testament. Um, as you read the Old Testament, if you're reading Psalm 91, it's talking about the corporate people who are following God and how God will protect them. Great statements about how God would send His angels to protect them and that God won't let evil come near their tent and those kind of things. So that's the direct context, and it is um, and it has actual fulfillment in the land in the land of Israel. God would actually fulfill these promises, but they weren't ultimate because God did allow His people to be martyred and He did allow at times evil to come into their tents. And so these are our ultimate promises. But there's actually something beyond a direct context. So when you read it, if you have good reading skills, you're like, okay, the people that are get this are a bunch of people. This is not just about a guy living. This is not just about the Messiah. Some if it didn't say that clearly, but particularly it's about the people of God who should receive these promises that God's given them. But there's a different context outside of direct context, which is the prophetic context. So. <coughs> Very likely, this is a prophetic. Uh, this is a prophetic statement. We don't have other places in Scripture where it says this is a prophetic statement. But I think actually Satan is correct. Satan is pointing to this text actually being an Easter egg. There are overt prophecies in the Old Testament, and then there are shall we call it, Easter eggs, illusions, things that are laying there that your eyeball wouldn't catch until later on when it's pulled out and said that was a prophecy. For instance, I mentioned last week, out of Egypt I will call my son. If you're reading that text in the Old Testament, it's clearly Israel. There's no like, woo, 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 and the Messiah is his son. It's just his people. You read it that, but then in the New Testament we find out that really it was an Easter egg prophecy. It was hidden there, designed for us to be able to tie into later. I think that actually Satan is correct in this. I'm going to give you guys an example of this. Here's another example. In Psalm 34:20, it says he keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. And so it's a, another statement about God's protection of his people. But later on, when you're reading in John 19, 36, it says, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And so on the cross, you remember Jesus, they wanted to expedite the death of the three guys on the cross because of the time of day. And so they sent these guys with clubs to shatter the legs of the of the criminals so sag down and suffocate, but they get to Jesus and Jesus is already dead. So they poke his poke his side with the the spear to make sure that he's already dead. But it says that they didn't break his bones, so that prophecy would be fulfilled, which was this one in in John nineteen thirty six, referencing the Psalm thirty four one. Which when you read Psalm thirty four, you're probably not going to think initially with your eyes, "This is Messiah." It's an Easter egg hit there, right? So these things happen. In the scripture, incidentally, and then thirdly, uh, there's an ultimate context. These things that are promised in Psalms are to us because Christ fulfilled the law and earned all of the blessings of the law. And so, as he says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And so ultimately, we do get to tag into these things through Christ because we're in Christ. It's a little deeper into the pool. I'm just going to leave that deep edge right now at this point, okay? but it's interesting what, what, what um, speaking of Easter eggs, what Satan didn't mention, when you read uh, Psalm 91, verses 11 to 12, as he quoted so handily to Jesus, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands he will bear you up unless you strike your foot against a stone. He did not, quote the next verse, and you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion. And the serpent you'll trample underfoot. Didn't mention that one. That's back to Genesis chapter 3, right? You will, you know, he will, you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. And so um, Satan chooses to admit certain things and end the text when it's convenient to him. So Satan's attacks are references to and leaning upon Jesus' position and authority, his right as the Son of God to impose his wisdom over the Father's plan. He's trying to poke Jesus into that. He's testing Jesus. First, a plan for him to not to eat when he shouldn't have eat, ate, eaten. Sorry, babe. Where you at? <laughs> she busts me for that all the time right there. So, um, first, it's it's a plan to to make him eat when he shouldn't eat. And now it's a time for him to, to act rather than wait for the glory that God has planned for him. And I say glory because this is at the temple. It seems physical. He'd be seen when he hurls himself off and he's captured, by, held up by angels. It's established who he is. And glory would be given according to his plan. So I want to give you uh, basically five simple helps from this text um, that, I s- that I see going through here. Um, number one. Satan's choice tools with Christ were pleasures, not pain. Satan's choice tools with Christ were pleasures, not pain. So Satan's tools ultimately tie into pleasures and delights. Either by deceitfully proposing them, hey, you'll be really happy if you have this sex outside of God's way. You'll be really happy if you have attained this thing outside of God's way by stealing it or by coveting it until you can't have it. You'll be really happy, right? So he ties into these pleasures and deceitfully proposing them or threatening current delights. Sure like my mom. I sure like my kids. I sure like my house. I sure like my health. I sure like my happiness. I sure like my bank account. And he goes, but what if I took that away? What if I took her away? What What if I take all of them away? Right, so it's always back to pleasures and delights, either proposing ones that are inappropriate in their lies, or else threatening the ones that are there and telling you, you know what? Those pleasures and those delights are ultimate and they are more important than anything else and if you lose those, you lost everything and until you have these ones I'm proposing, you have nothing. So we should be on guard for subconscious intoxication of and commitment to immediate earthly pleasures. And look freshly with memorized scripture at what God promises about true delight and pleasure. Test. You're not going to say a word to anybody. Just, just, I just want you to be honest with yourself for one moment. So, I'm telling you, Satan uses pleasures as his tool to bring about his aim, which is distrust in Jesus. And he's really, really good at it. He's so good at it that Jesus uses the full blade. He uses scripture against it. So my question for you, if you know that Satan is going to tempt you by pleasures to either be proposing ones that aren't legitimate and good at the time, or by taking other pleasures away, what will you f- counter him with? What will you counter him with? Um, will you counter him with the general notion of like, Jesus is better, make my heart believe and just sing the song with us? Or will you counter it with scripture? So here's my test. I just invite you to think about it. Right now in your mind, can you remember any passage in the Bible where God is promising pleasure and true delight to you? Can you quote to yourself any passage in the Bible where God is promising to you true pleasures and true delight? Just think about it. Drum it up. All right, so just lock that in. If you can't, I'm not going to make fun of you. I'm just going to tell you, if you can't quote verses about God's treasure and delight and promises of that, you aren't even beginning to be equipped to handle temptation when he very adequately promises things to you. In your own flesh, even without even Satan on scene, your heart is kicking all kinds of promises about pleasures and delights. Then when he shows up on scene, here's all he can do. He can just throw a mountain of wood on top of that fire in your heart. Those existing desires you have in your heart, He's sharp. He knows what it is. And he just dumps dry wood on top of that thing. What are you going to fight it with? You're going to fight it with vague notions of like, well, Jesus is the light of my heart. I was saying, my brother, sister, don't do that. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus knew the strength of it. He memorized God's words so he might be able to use in the time. And so if you don't have verses about God promising pleasures and true delight and life, talk to your MC about it. They will help you out. And then you guys can go tear up the scriptures looking for this stuff. It's all over the place. Like, dig up those nuggets. Memorize them. Get the ones that make sense to you. True, from the Bible, that, that sing to your heart. I have verses that sing to my heart that don't necessarily sing to someone else's. And I guarantee you that many of us here have verses that really sing to their hearts and say it clearly in a way that maybe doesn't quite for me. So we're going to find our own. They're all over scripture. Memorize scripture. Number two. So number one, Satan's choice tool with Christ, um, his choice tools were pleasures, not pain. Number two, Christ accomplished what we could not. Christ accomplished what we could not. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Jesus endured the temptation that we couldn't endure, and he did it successfully, and he did it for us. We needed him to do it for us. So right now, I could pick somebody who's my lovely assistant today. Oh, it's Juan. And so Juan is a brother of mine. I love Juan. He's hiding behind Megan Moyer's head, but now I have eye contact. Um, Juan's a brother of the Lord. And in the, in the hallways of heaven, Juan has endured his temptations because Jesus endured every one of these temptations and crushed it and so the day that Juan comes to Jesus and says, I don't want to be against you anymore. I want to belong to you, Jesus. There's this standing question of like, what do we do with your debt load? God goes, I can't just like, what, I just can't like ignore it. What are we going to do with our debt load? Jesus says, use what I've done, right? Jesus lived 33 and a half years, we believe, on earth, we know, perfectly without any sin and accomplished the righteousness that Juan couldn't. So that when Juan is forgiven by the blood of Jesus, then the standing question of Juan's performance is answered by the performance of Jesus. And the righteousness of Jesus as he endures all these temptations and wins is stuffed into Juan's account. So Juan's account is maxed out. Bing, bing, on both sides. Complete forgiveness and absence of sin and complete righteousness is given to him. It's imputed to him by Christ because Christ did what Juan never could do and what I never could do, and what you never could do. So Jesus, enduring these temptations, accomplished what we could not, and it means the world. So where Israel and we fail the test of submitting to and trusting the Father's plan, Christ did not fail. He perfectly trusted the Father and accomplished it for us so that our record might reflect this perfect position in this, not our natural failure. Therefore, because of Christ, God has called us to stand tall and confident before him and receive his love because of who we are in Christ. Third, Christ's encounter with this temptation shapes his compassion. Christ's encounter with temptation shapes his compassion. Now, you know I like to make me some typos on my slides. But shapes is present. It's not past tense. I say shapes because he still stands to this day he stands on our behalf in heaven as our mediator. And his compassion is shaped by what he endured here. He says in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He is not unable to sympathize with our weakness. He gets it. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be hungry in the desert. He knows what it's like to be led by the Spirit and to trust the Lord and be so hungry. I mean, can we even imagine that? I can't imagine being hungry for it in a couple of days, right? He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be neglected and to be forgotten um, and to be brought to a spot where all of a sudden all of that could be fixed. In one moment, a new identity could be given you and you can have all that glory and all that acceptance and all that wonder in one moment. He knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to lose people He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows all these things, and because he knows them and he's gone perfectly through them, he sympathizes with you. So brother and sister in Jesus, who pulls off a sucky day and fails for the 10,000th time, Jesus Christ, your mediator, is sympathetic towards you. He understands what you've faced. He delights in standing on your behalf. And him being in this temptation and him encountering it shapes his compassion for you today and for you tomorrow and in 40 years from now when you feel like man i shouldn't be messing up all the time and you still are messing up his heart is shaped by compassion because he knows what it's like fourth grumbling is highly insulting to god okay let's just get down to some meaty here grumbling is highly highly offensive to the lord when we are grumbling. It's saying, ultimately, everything is bad. Ultimately, I'm in threat. Ultimately, I'm undefended. Ultimately, I'm not cared for. Ultimately, this is not wise, and this is love, not love. So there is a vast and wild Bible study on the word testing. Um, there's terms all over the Old Testament, New Testament, probably about four or five of them out there. And God does not tempt us, but many times God puts people to the test, particularly in the Old Testament, to demonstrate, to evoke out of them. Will they trust him or will they not trust him? What is not cool, ever cool, is when we put God to the test. So 10 times, 10 times in the Old Testament, particularly 10 times in, in, the, in the wilderness, Israel put God to the test. And the way they did that, every time, almost without exception is, they didn't say, God stinks. They said, Whoever's representing God, you stink. Why have you brought us here to die in the desert? Why have you brought us here away from the meat pots? Why have you brought us here away from water? Why have you brought us here we can't be buried? Why have you, why have you, why have you? And so they grumbled, particularly they grumbled horizontally, and it is described when described vertically as they tested me. He reflects this um, in, in the book of Exodus by naming a couple spots. There's a spot where they don't have water, and they're just complaining and whining about it, and God God graciously gives them the water. Remember, it's the time when, when Moses has the staff, right, and he comes and touches the rock. Rock opens up, water squirts out. But the place is named two things, and the names are in Hebrew, testing and fighting, complaining. Complaining against Moses, thus testing the Lord. And it was wicked, it was wicked. What was happening was those people in their hearts <coughs> were, not rep- were not recognizing that God was actually in control. Their focus is, l- is horizontally, the situation, the people in hand. They're denying the vertical reality behind it. And number two, they say it's bad. So it's not under divine control. And number two, it's bad. And that is testing the Lord. It is an insult to God's sovereignty and an insult to God's goodness. And it is a highfalutin, Crime against God, and he does not take kindly to it. So translate all the way back down to us today. When we have stuff that goes on, our car breaks down, someone's mean to us, our parents don't give us what they want, they're unjust towards us. The things beyond measure what your siblings do to you, what your boss treats you, how these sufferings, and you're sick, and you're poor, and you lose this, and you gain this. God is in control over all those things. A grumbling heart says, A, either there is no control, or B, there's control and it's not good. It is to this day still testing the Lord. God calls us away from a grumbling heart multiple times in the New Testament and instead calls us to the opposite, which is thankfulness. Thankfulness. Thankfulness is the opposite. Thankfulness is when we see the things that are in our life are under the control of God and that God is good. So when your emotions get you, and you're feeling that grumble, grumble, grumble thing coming along, understand what's happening. Your soul has proclaimed the lack of divine power or the lack of divine goodness in that power. And God calls you to say, oh, no, 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 child, don't walk around grumbling. Be anxious for nothing. But everything through prayer and thanksgiving, let your request be known unto God. God's peace will guard you, guard your hearts and minds. He calls us away from the grumbling and calls us to thanksgiving. So grumbling is highly insulting to God because the issue is never horizontal. The issue ultimately is never face-to-face, situational. The issue is always vertical. And God is promising you this. Remember, we were in Romans 8, right? We know that God works all things together for those the love God those are called according to his purpose he doesn't let go nothing's slipping under the radar he's not never like tossing well hey this chunk of your life is just random and a chance and I'm no longer God over that God is God all the time and to us, us children everything that he is sovereignly bringing to our life it is for our good it may be hard for the moment but it is for our good and we will rejoice in this joy ultimately and then finally The last piece that I noticed out of this, Christ demonstrated trusting patience for us. So how does this look? It looks by not taking matters into our own hands. We give up on demanding our timing. So number one, we recognize God and his sovereign place in our life and his goodness in that sovereignty. We recognize that. And then we step out and we don't bring our own solutions to it. We don't demand our timing on it. We don't inappropriately pluck a, promise of God and force it to right now, right, especially in a sporting event. But we don't do this. Even with, with better context, we don't take the promises of God and force them to the right now because God's promises are always ultimate and sometimes temporal. Nor do we openly disobey because of impatience. Well, God's not doing his part, so I better take care of this, I better take it into my own hands, better bootstrap myself. God helps those who help themselves and a hundred and other one bad Christian American phrases we've used we don't give up on god we don't step into sin and hear me we don't eject out of this life made by and purchased by god by suicide suicide is part of that it is us ejecting out of this life that is made by god and purchased by god bringing our own solution to a situation our own timing to a situation that is not ours to call and like Christ, we have we believers have a future honor. we have a future glory, a future name that we don't have access to right now. Do you guys remember um in, in Revelation it talks about he'll give you a name. no one else knows. And to me that sounds funny, like what's well, gonna be like Bob or Chatouuf or something like that And like why is that why is that exciting? Well the reason it's exciting because it's a name, not just a name on paper like. I don't know who I'm going to be. I don't know my reputation and my giftedness and my power and my authority and all the things that I will be eternally. I'm just, I'm just a hint of that now. My name is not yet established. I kind of have a name in this church right now. You guys kind of, you know who I am. But because you know who I am, I have a reputation. We call that a name. And in heaven, we have a real name, a real glory. The real Claire will be on display. You know, and, and all of heaven will be amazed at the wonders of who Claire is. Not more than Jesus, but they'll be amazed at his handiwork. So God's promises, the heart of them are about future fulfillment, not about immediate fulfillment. We can't force them right now, even though he gives sweet foretastes. Um, we are to step into resting in God's promises, just like Christ showed us, instead of like taking our own solutions. Resting in God's promise because we trust. The key difference between trust and The key difference is trust and submission and that is patience. Patience that continues to trust. So Christ has left us, the ones that he has substituted for, an example to follow. In our honor positions and sons and daughters, we cannot be assumptive and demand things from our Father nor take things into our own hands. So these five things we take out of this little short portion here. Number one, Satan's choice tools with Christ were pleasures, not pain, and that will be his tools with you. Number two, Christ accomplished what you could not. Praise God for that. Number three, Christ's encounter with temptation shapes his compassion. His compassion for us today as he stands on our behalf and praise God for that. He's not rolling his eyes like, oh, Father. There's that Chris Garrison guy again. My like, what a lame deal. All right. What he, instead, like when he thinks of Chris, like he's just full of compassion. Like his heart, he understands the difficulties of what Chris is going through. Fourthly, grumbling is highly highly insulting to god It is called testing god and it comes from us looking um, not truly seeing things as vertical under god's control and out of the gun or god's goodness and finally christ demonstrated the trusting patience for us all let's pray father i pray that you would be with us um in that passage in hebrew is to be careful that we draw near with a listening ear so father i pray that you would help us by your spirit um Hit us all where we need to be hit with this. Stir our hearts where we don't understand you. Maybe we've not understood that you are in control and you're good. Maybe we've never thought about that. Maybe we've thought about it, but we just doubt it. Um, Father, I pray that through the conquering of Jesus then, even this morning, that he would conquer more. He'd conquer souls that are distrusting you in favor of trusting something else in themselves. I pray that his conquering work be done in our hearts as believers, that we would see what we falsely trust, what has won our hearts over. Um, Maybe in this area of complaining, Father, we'd see how bad it is to be ignorantly acting as if God is not in control and he's not good, and that really that is what we are preaching and saying to you and to the world when we go about with this grumbling, discontent, angry, anxious, frustrated, down-in-the-mouth heart, Lord, you are not that. You are in control and you are good. So I pray that the conquering of Jesus would conquer our hearts this morning. We are so thankful for him that he did not give in to temptation, but that he set that example for us and he accomplished that righteousness for us. And we are forever grateful to stand in his name and forever grateful to stand under his leadership and to follow him and follow his words and follow example he said in this text. Thank you. Father, now we ask that you be with us as we celebrate communion and remember the work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. Pray that you give us hearts that are honoring and true in that. Give us hearts that are honoring and true in the songs we sing as we celebrate um, your life giving work in baptism. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.